Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Business First Bank, with locations throughout the state, including 11 offices in the Baton Rouge area, providing personal and commercial banking, treasury management, and wealth solution services to help clients succeed. Business First Bank, banking with greater momentum. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world. From Mansers on the Boulevard in Baton Rouge, we're out to lunch with editor of the Baton Rouge Business Report, Stephanie Regal. It's business Baton Rouge style. Hi, I'm Stephanie Regal. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Few industries in our economy today are changing as rapidly and dramatically as healthcare. Since 2000, healthcare inflation has outpaced consumer price inflation nearly every single year. And as prices have risen, our population has continued to age, and our federal government has cut back on what it reimburses doctors and hospitals for taking care of the poor through the Medicaid program. All of these cost pressures are forcing providers and insurance companies to rethink the way they do business. Joining me today to discuss this is Terry Fontenot, president and CEO of Woman's Hospital, the only independent community-owned women's and children's hospital in the country and the largest birthing and neonatal intensive care facility in Louisiana. Now, Terry has been at the helm of Women's for more than 22 years, making her one of the longest-serving hospital CEOs in the nation. During her time there, she has led Women's on an expansion from its original location on Airline Highway near Goodwood to a new $340 million campus. More recently, she started guiding Women's in its development of a mixed-use community on a portion of undeveloped hospital property that will include single-family homes, apartments, commercial retail space, and even a charter school. Terry, Terry, it's brave new territory for a hospital, and you have so many exciting things going on, so it's a pleasure to have you here on Out to Lunch today. Thanks for being here. Joining me and Terry is Somesh Nigam, Senior Vice President and Chief Analytics Officer for Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Louisiana, the largest healthcare insurer in the state with eight offices and more than 1.6 million members. Through his expertise in analytics and more than 25 years of experience, Somesh is helping change the healthcare delivery model that we've all grown up with, known as fee-for-service, to what is known as a value-based payment system. That means doctors are incentivized to keep patients healthy rather than just treating them when they're sick. Somesh brings big city credentials to the Bayou State. He came to Blue Cross from New York City, where he was a senior executive with IBM overseeing the Global Data Office. He also spent several years with Independence Blue Cross in Philadelphia, and before that with Johnson & Johnson. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Louisiana is lucky to have you, and, and so is Baton Rouge. Somesh, thanks for being here today. Great, thank you. Well, Terry, you have been CEO of Women's Hospital since 1996. You've been at the hospital since 1992 when you were hired to do their books. You were a young mother at the time with little kids. How did this happen, and did you ever imagine yourself running the hospital one day? No, I did not imagine myself running the hospital. That really was not my career goal. I had been the chief financial officer at three other hospitals prior to coming to Women's Hospital, and I was perfectly comfortable in that space because I'm MBA, CPA, and that's really what my uh, career goals had been. So when I was invited to come to Women's Hospital, when the former C CFO, Vicki Romero, was uh, 
promoted to CEO, she and I knew each other, and she invited me to come over. And for the four years prior to becoming CEO, I moved more into operations. And then when she left, the board asked me to take over that position. And it was, it was not something that I expected. And right. so I had to spend some time thinking about it. But I'm very, very glad that I did. It's been a wonderful career opportunity for me and for my family. And, and women's is really rather unique. I mean, there are not a lot of women's hospitals out there. Right. As far as I know, there are none that meet all the criteria of women's hospital in Baton Rouge. We are not-for-profit. Mm-hmm. We are independent, so we're not part of a system. And 20 years ago, there were other hospitals similar to women's hospital around the country, but all of them have joined large systems because they needed access to capital or they were having difficulty with reimbursement through managed care companies as well as the government. But because of the wonderful support we get from the uh, the people in Baton Rouge as well as the, the loyalty of our medical staff, many of whom were hired by our founders, hmm. the 21 OBGYNs that actually created Women's Hospital 50 years ago. We have a, a very strong culture and a very family feel. So we're, we're, uh, we're a niche provider, but we also are very large in terms of volume and scope of services, particularly subspecialty services that are focused on women and infants. It's, it's so interesting, and we'll dig a little deeper into that. But Samesh, I want to bring you into the conversation. Coming from New York with companies like J&J and IBM, what brought you to Louisiana? I mean, I know Blue Cross and Blue Shield did, but, but why Louisiana and what professional challenges do we have here you know, that made this attractive to you? Yeah, I think my story is somewhat similar. Uh, our new visionary CEO, Steve Woodwarehigh, uh, is somebody who I reported to for several years while I was at Independence Blue Cross. And, uh, you know, he, he had hired at that point the first chief informatics officer amongst the blues, and he continues to lead the trend. When he came to Louisiana, he went around looking for a chief analytics officer, um, realizing that data and analytics will pave the way for better care. Uh, and, of course, we're going to talk about value-based care. Uh, it's all about uh, incentivizing uh, cost-effective and high-quality care. And that requires a lot of data, a lot of data that has to be exchanged between insurance companies as well as providers like women's and be able to be able to analyze what to incentivize and how. uh, The fact is that there is an environment here. I I tell people that Louisiana does lead the nation in happiness. There's a very famous uh, National Bureau of Economic Research study that actually showed that we have strong community and we can leverage that here for improving our health outcomes. Um, We certainly have great collaborative environment between providers and payers, uh, as far as I can tell. So there are a lot of ingredient, key ingredients in place to really move our healthcare um, needle up, and it'll be quite evident in national rankings as we do that. So so that's a great challenge to work on. That's good to know. So I, I hear this a lot about, you know, data and analytics and the role that they will play in moving toward this value-based system. And Terry, please, you jump in. What, how does this really work? I mean, what are you all doing, the programmers and the data experts in your department, and how do you use that data? I mean, specifically, we look right. at it, you know, well, you who know, gets sick when, and then yeah, how I mean, do you translate that into the kind of care you're going to provide or the kind of care you're going to reimburse? Yeah, I'll, I'll let Terry chime in, but one easy way to think about about is that you know today Amazon recommends with great accuracy what book you want to get because you've already bought 
certain things. So very similarly, you can think about, you can predict diabetes before diabetes happens. You can help navigate a high-risk pregnancy before some of the events become evident. You can certainly take a look at how um, you know, comorbidities of diabetes develop, such as uh, likely heart attacks and strokes and complications and surgery, et cetera. So there's a lot of things we can do predictively versus looking at rear view mirror. And that is all possible because of this sort of new set of technologies that we collectively call artificial intelligence, which is driven by a lot of data. So, so like, how can you, you know, predict who is going to get diabetes? So we actually have a model like that. In fact, we've already implemented it where we are trying to predict not just who has diabetes, but who's likely to get diabetes. One of our models that's already working at Blue Cross Blue Shield is who is likely to get hospitalized in the next six months. It's highly accurate, better than really anything that's commercially available. We are able to predict a cohort which is likely to have 50% chance of getting hospitalized in the next six months, and we do it very accurately. We back tested it, and now it's being utilized with our care management. So a lot of these technologies are new, yeah. but what that allows our care managers, 200 or so who work in the building, to get involved in their care and provide the right care. We can connect with providers like women's and say, well, this is a case where you may want to be a little careful, and have all hands on deck, we can get involved in that member's care. So that's really the world we are moving into. Yeah, and, yeah. and so yeah. Terry, how are you all adapting at Women's and, and bringing value-based care into the neo, you know, women's care space? Sure, it's very similar to um, what's previously been described. We, we call it population health and case management. And for specific uh, conditions or diseases, there's a lot of data that we can gather. We already know, for example, preterm birth, there are social determinants as well as medical risks that those patients have. And so we're doing everything we can right now to work with our uh, physicians who see those patients prenatally to try to avoid a patient having a preterm birth because those babies end up in the NICU where it's very, very expensive and they may have developmental problems throughout their lives. So that's just one area. We're doing something similar with women's cancer. So as we are able to use technology and data that we can collect while patients are receiving medical care, we can identify, isolate, and then provide more support and resources for them to try to keep them healthier. If they have a chronic condition, then also try to make sure that they are managing it the very best way. A couple of things that we, we see most uh, prevalently in that cause preterm birth, for example, for pregnant women are um, hypertension mm -hmm. and gestational diabetes. Those are two very, very big things. And 40% of our patients will have one or the other of those conditions based on historical information about preterm birth. So wow. if we know that, then we can have a lot of different interventions and make sure they have access to drugs and other resources they'll need to try to get them to go to term so they'll have a healthy baby. At a time with, when HIPAA, you know, and the privacy laws are more restrictive than ever, we're also moving toward this world where we need access to all this data. Is, do these work at cross purposes or am I not understanding something? Yeah, at least in my view, um, 
HIPAA laws uh, were designed to, to provide certain protections, obviously, to patients and members. And even within the scope of HIPAA laws, we are able to use that data. Today, health insurers and providers can work together as long as it's in the context of clinical care of that member, you certainly can use the data. It's appropriate uh, to be cognizant of those rules because you want appropriate use of that data. So if certainly you're trying to predict risk of hospitalization or, or risk of complications during pregnancy and so on and so forth. Those are appropriate uses. Um, you know, the national debate is on what is appropriate. Obviously, some members would like to have, you know, certain types of data only be restricted to certain providers. Uh, you will see increasingly uh, new rules that will come about that will provide those protections to members. But we are very careful and certainly want to make sure that all appropriate laws are adhered to. And when you're yeah. using predictive analytics, you don't really need the patient's name. That's right, exactly. You so just need the information. No now, when you're providing individualized care or customized care, then, of course, you do need that patient's right. name, but you're interacting with that patient, yeah. and, and they're, they're under the care of a physician who's getting the proper consents, and if they come into the hospital, of course, we get proper consents, too. Mm -hmm. and, and so I know, like, now all of your medical records are electronic and when you go to see your physician at Woman's and one of the practices there, all the data is entered electronically now. Where does that data go and is that used? I mean, does that get shared with Blue Cross so that they can predict certain outcomes to move towards this value-based system? If, if it's a Blue Cross patient, they have access to that data and they probably already have the data because they're receiving information. They're either authorizing certain types of care or they're paying for certain types of care. So um, when, we, when we meet with Blue Cross, and we've had several meetings with them to give them some suggestions based on the data that we have about ways that they can reduce the cost, improve outcomes for not only um, women who are pregnant and babies, but again, women's cancer and some of the other services we offer. So when we present that information to them, then it's aggregated, it's not individualized, and it's not limited just to yeah. Blue Cross patients. Yeah. One way to look at, think about it, is that Blue Cross will have um, data on every event that that member went through. So if they went to women's for delivery or cancer care, they'll have that data if they ended up going to um, you know, Baton Rouge Clinic for routine checkups, they'll have that data. If they went to slopes in Colorado and got hurt, uh, we'll have that data. So we do get data on all events. So it's true 360 degree data where providers have a lot of clinically rich data. So the entire, all the clinical data about the pregnancy will be, for example, in women's. So it's a combination of this horizontal link data together with deeply clinical rich data that can add a lot of value. And a lot of things that we are working on are in collaboration with, with providers right. for that reason. But mm -hmm. hospitals mm -hmm. and health systems ha have a limited amount of data on that patient. So okay. the payer has a lot more information than we do. If that patient has uh, chronic conditions or has been treating for being treated for other things outside the pregnancy, we won't have that information. So we need to be working closely with the payers because they've got the, the comprehensive information. Patients getting... Um, using prescription drugs that are outside of, related to their pregnancy, we wouldn't know about that. If they are seeing internal medicine physician for other types of problems or an orthopedic surgeon, we wouldn't have information about that, but the payer yeah. would. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. yeah, and you know, through the value-based arrangements, we also give providers a reason to care. So now there's an added incentive. Well, let's combine our data and expertise and work to the benefit 
of the members. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Stephanie Regal. I'm talking to Somesh Nigam of Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Louisiana and Terry Fontenot of Women's Hospital. Terry? And I've been hearing now for, for, I don't know, maybe the past decade of pilot programs, whatever, using these, you know, value-based models of care. And, but is it really going to ever happen? I mean, do you s ever see the entire system moving to this? And is it, is it closer than maybe we realize? I think it's happening now. It is here. We have some payer contracts that have um, risk-reward arrangements, and we are delighted when we can participate in those because at Women's, we want very, very much to be offering the highest level of care. And if we can learn from others how to do that, and if we, and if we get rewarded, particularly through the physicians, because the physicians make a lot of the decisions, even in hospitals, about how pa uh, patients are cared for, then we can move to the value-based proposition, which is better outcomes, and most of the time, better outcomes means lower cost, which then translates into lower premiums for, for uh, payers and that sort of thing. Um, so we're, we're very, very excited, and we're doing it on our own, even if we didn't have, because we were doing it long before we got incentivized or rewarded for it. But so what one thing we have been able to do is have agreements with our physicians about care being provided in our facilities and using best practices. And when we can pay them to be our partner in doing that, that has really paid dividends to patients as well as to our cost structure. When I know like 50% of your patients, I believe, Terry, are Medicaid patients. Uh, has, is the federal government on board with this shift? Well, 50% of our uh, deliveries are Medicaid. Okay. You're correct. We're, we're a safety net hospital. We um, absorb the Earl K. Long OBGYN residency program and the patients that were being seen at Earl K. Long. Uh, and all of our physicians accept Medicaid because 72% of the babies born in this state are covered by Medicaid. We have a very people, um, and I just think that like everybody needs to realize that. Yeah. You know why? Because when they're talking about cutting our budget and all the alleged waste, which is really no longer there, and when you consider that 72% of the babies in the state are Medicaid babies, mm -hmm. that just explains so much. Right, it does. And a lot of times, again, it's those social determinants that determine how healthy a baby may be born. If the mom doesn't have transportation to get to a physician, because her car broke down that day or she has to make three bus stop changes or she's employed at a place that that she gets an hourly rate wage she can't take off a half a day right to to go or she's got to find child care mm -hmm. so there's a lot of barriers mm -hmm. and those are the things that we're trying to work on to make sure that patients have access to the care so that again the baby can be born healthy now specifically to your question uh, the federal government through the Affordable Care Act they set up a number of pilot projects and mechanisms to provide some resources so that hospital health systems and payers could learn how to collect this data and how to use it. So that was that's been what six years ago now, and it was a real nice boost. We were able to link our electronic systems with our physicians' offices. That's how we're now able at Women's to exchange data because the, phys it, the physicians prior to that hospitals were not allowed to pay for IT solutions in physicians' offices unless they employed them. There was okay. a barrier about that. It was, it was illegal. But part of the Affordable Care Act was to provide funds so that hospitals and physicians could be linked so that we can share that information. So that's one example. But there's also a number of pilot projects that have been funded that have shown 
a lot of different ways that um, working together and using the analytics and having that that focus on it and being paid rewarded for outcomes is um, uh, there's a high ROI on that, let me just say. And you mentioned, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act. And, I mean, I think in political circles, there are those who will just bash it because it's Obamacare. But when you talk to anybody in healthcare circles, I think they'll tell you that a lot of it has been very, very good. And certainly there have been some problems with it. Yep. Um, do, will Blue Cross continue to participate in Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I mean, we support it. And as you know, with our partnership with Anthem, uh, we have uh, joint ownership of a company called Healthy Blue, which mm -hmm. is a Medicaid company and uh, one of the biggest uh, providers of Medicaid services. Um, coming back to um, how data and analytics uh, can help, um, there are the social determinants are the key, as Terry pointed out. We uh, ran a program not too long ago where we made um, co-payments for certain chronic medicines. Uh, we reduced that to zero. It's called the zero dollar copay program. We tried that with a few thousand members and in fact found that that caused the medication adherence to go up. If members were diabetic and they were taking medicine for diabetes, we could see a substantial reduction in their hemoglobin A1C values, which is a marker for diabetes, um, and overall improvement in health. Uh, we were so encouraged. In fact, it led to um, a reduction in hospitalization for certain conditions. So we, we were so encouraged by that that we we're going to scale that program up by fivefold, knowing fully well that in our state there are people who have to make a choice between that small copay that they pay uh, and perhaps sometimes putting food on the table or other essentials yeah. that they need. So I do feel that you will see data and analytics identify these opportunities and also figure out where is the right amount of ROI. And particularly in this new world of Medicaid expansion, there may be unique opportunities for payers and providers to work with the state and try to have all forces work on this problem in a similar manner. Rebecca right? Gee yeah, is yeah. the Secretary of Louisiana Department yes. of Health and she's an OBGYN. Mm -hmm. right. And so she's we wonderful. work very, very closely with her. She absolutely understands the importance of making sure that patients have access to prenatal care and other types of preventive measures. I was just emailing with her this morning about P17. It's a drug for women who have had previous preterm births and if the drug is given to a patient prenatally, then it will, it's got a very high probability of avoiding a preterm birth. But Medicaid now pays less than what the drug costs for a physician to give it in their offices because the drug company has increased the price twice. Okay. So she's, I, I emailed her and she is, she's already at, I mean, this was an hour ago, she's already asked for the president of that company that makes that drug to call her. Impressive. So she is really on top of, yeah. because as I said earlier, the most of the deliveries or babies born in our state are covered by Medicaid. Mm -hmm. They're our largest payer, mm -hmm. by far our largest payer. So that's why they work closely with us and we work closely with them. But she understands and really embraces and supports uh, any opportunities to reduce the cost. One other thing, when you mentioned the prescription, which is great, I think that's a great idea to avoid, eliminate any kind of barriers, whether it's COVID. Five dollars may not sound like that's much right. to us, right. but, but even it, for people right. who have insurance, yeah, sure. it may be, particularly yeah. if they have a lot of other prescriptions Absolutely. they're having to take. We hear about people who's half their pills or mm -hmm. take a pill every other day, and that loses the efficacy of it. Of One course. thing that woman said a year or two ago is, Patients who were being sent home with drugs 
um, after their stay, particularly if they had had hypertension or gestational diabetes, well, they're going home with the newborn. It may be on the week. They don't have they don't have the time or the ability to stop at the drugstore on the way home. Right. And um, hospitals aren't allowed to give prescriptions for people to take at home. It has to be an outpatient okay. setting. So we created a retail pharmacy in our facility, and it's, we call it Meds to Beds. Mm -hmm. That's and great. And so nice. when the patient is, is going to be discharged, then the prescription is called in or probably emailed to our pharmacy, and we have someone deliver it to their room, nice. and we take care of all the billing. Because if, if it's Medicaid patient, they don't have co-pays. Mm -hmm. But they do have their drug when they leave the hospital, That's and, great. which is really important. One other thing I want to get to before we run out of time that you all are doing that's a little different, Terry, is this new mixed-use development on your property called Matera. And this is going to be a, a like a traditional neighborhood development with houses and apartments and, you know, space for people who work at your hospital but also just people out in the community can move in and a, a nice charter school to send their kids to and eventually a retail component of what as well this is a new model for a hospital is this a, a revenue generator for you um, a, a way to just create a great space in the community it, it is both it will be a revenue generator and it is um, an opportunity we think to provide a community atmosphere uh, around Women's Hospital being the anchor because we're about health and wellness and we want to promote health and wellness in both in medical care as well as outside of medical care. You know, we've had the Wellness Center for many, many years and there's over 3,000 female members of, of it. So when we bought the Briarwood Golf Course in the early 2000s, it was 225 acres. The hospital campus takes up about 60 acres of that, so it's part of the back nine. So the, the frontage of the hospital on Airline Highway and all of the front nine is available for development. So it, as you said, it will have um, single-family housing, it will have multifamily housing, hopefully we'll have assisted living, fitness club, commercial, retail, professional office space, and we're delighted to partner with uh, others on the charter school because there's not really an elementary school in that part of town. And I, Warren Drake and I have been talking over the years about we, how they might partner with us to offer that in our, in our part of the parish. So as far as the revenue generating part, we figure that Medicare and Medicaid are two government payers who represent half of our revenue. They're probably not going to pay us any more than they're paying us today. But, of course, our expenses are going to go up. Drug costs, salaries, up. everything sure. else. So we were looking for a revenue source that was not dependent on medical care or payer negotiations so that we could use that money to reinvest into our facility and programs. We offer a lot of programs at Women's that are not reimbursed by anybody, but it's part of our mission to improve the health of women and infants. So this is just another unique revenue source from the sale of houses or leasing of buildings that may not be directly related to patient care, but does give us funds to be able to continue to provide the level of care that we're currently providing and hopefully even better. Well, I, I can promise you we will be following the progress in the months and years to come. Terry Fontenot and Somesh Nigam, you both face daunting challenges trying to cope with the changes and challenges of health care. It's enough to keep you up every night, so it's so interesting to hear about your approaches and the innovations as you work to adapt to everything going on in your industry. Thanks so much for being here today and for sharing your stories with us. Thank you for Thank inviting you. us. My guests today on Out to Lunch have been Terry Fontenot, CEO of Women's Hospital, and Somesh Nigam, Senior Vice President at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Louisiana. 
The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Peter Raschuti. And our Baton Rouge business consultants are Charlie D'Agostino and Ann Edelman. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on our website, itsbatonrouge.la, and on our It's Baton Rouge Facebook page. You can hear this show and past episodes of Out to Lunch wherever you get podcasts and at itsbatonrouge.la. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsbatonrouge.la and WRKF 89.3 FM. I'm Stephanie Regal. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Mansur's for more business Baton Rouge style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch is recorded live over lunch at Mansur's on the Boulevard in Baton Rouge. Mansur's is open for lunch daily from 11 to 2, for dinner nightly, and for brunch on Saturdays and Sundays. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. Mitchell's music is available wherever great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Business First Bank with locations throughout the state including 11 offices in the Baton Rouge area providing personal and commercial banking, treasury management, and wealth solution services to help clients succeed. Business First Bank, banking with greater momentum. And by Shewart & Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world.